And without looking for anybody to help him and without looking for sponsorship or anything else, he took and made his own rope and made a crossing 160 feet over the falls and 1,100 feet wide so that he could become the first person ever to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And he did it. But he didn't just do it. He did it well. And he did it often. And crowds of up to 100,000 people reportedly would show up to watch one of the great Blondin's acts. He was so good at it that he would do incredible things as he crossed this tightrope that he made himself. One time, he not only crossed it inch by inch and step by step, but he never used a net. He was always one step away from death. It was do or die. But one time as he did it, he took a chair out to the middle and he stood the chair and he balanced the chair on the tightrope and then he did a handstand on top of the chair. He got down and finished his walk. Another time, I don't know how he did this, but reportedly, and there, there are pictures of this, they're not very good, but one time he took a table and hot coals and a cast iron pan and made himself an omelet out on the middle of the Highline wire. After he made the omelet, he hooked the omelet somehow to a rope and lowered the omelet down to people who were looking at the falls on the Maid of the Mist and they ate the omelet. It was an incredible feat, but he was most famous for what he would do every time he did his act. He would finish his act with coming to one side of the falls and asking the crowd this question, do you think I can cross one more time, but this time I'm going to push a wheelbarrow across? And of course the crowd would respond and they would say, yes, we do. We believe you can do this. So then he would get up on the Highline wire and he would cross and he would have this little bitty wheelbarrow that he would go across on. Then he'd get to the other side and he would ask the same question. Do you believe I can get back the same way I came? Do you believe I can do it again with the wheelbarrow in front of me? And the crowds would go wild and they would say, yes, we do, because this guy was incredible. And then he would ask this question. All right, you believe I can do it. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and there would be nervous laughter. And reportedly what would happen next is the crowds would go quiet. Because we all know a truth, right? There's always a difference, not just in watching somebody do incredible feats, but there is always a difference between Watching and doing, believing and following, admiring and loving. There's a difference between cheering and participating. And I believe no one knows that better than Jesus. The question that the Sermon on the Mount wraps up with is similar to the question the great Blondin would ask. Do you want to get in the wheelbarrow? The question is, will you fully devote your life to this way, to the way of Jesus? Jesus wraps this sermon up, not with, hey, will you admire me or will you study me or not even will you believe, but he wraps the sermon up with this question, will you follow? Will you get in the wheelbarrow? 
And I've repeated this, I think now, this is week nine of this series, so let's keep repeating it till we're blue in the face. The Sermon on the Mount, church family, is not a pie in the sky, unobtainable standard. Jesus isn't giving us some crazy speech to say only the spiritual elite will ever get there. Nor is Jesus sharing a message or insight just saying, let me tell you how I live and me alone. What the Sermon on the Mount is, is plainly, is Jesus' how-to. It is the way of the Christian life. It is those who have decided to follow. It is our manual for Christian discipleship. For those of us who have tethered our lives to Jesus through baptism and become part of the redeemed. It's for those who don't just say, yes, you are my Lord. But it's for those of us It's our way of life for those of us who say, let's make him Lord, as Shannon was saying, every day. And with that in mind, that Jesus plainly wants us to live this out, he closes the sermon with these words. Matthew 7, 13 through 27. He says to us, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds beat blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See, in Jesus' eyes, there is no good reason as he wraps this incredible teaching up. He's saying to his listeners then and his listeners now that there is no good reason not to do what he said. He fully expects us to be the type of people who seek the blessing of the outcast. Those are the Beatitudes, who live lives free, not just of not doing the sin, but living our lives in a completely different way where we bless our enemy We live our lives free, not just of adultery, but free of lust, where we overcome evil, not with more evil, but with good, where we value 
the relationship we have with brothers and sisters so much that we'll reconcile with brothers and sisters before we even try to worship God. He believes that we should live in such a way that we would not judge for people's shortcomings, but live a life of love, of helping others, and to live a life free from worry and much, much more. This sermon is all kinds of things. It's beautiful and it's wonderful and it should be inspiring. But in reality, I think all of us struggle with the nagging feeling that it's impossible. That we feel like this sermon goes right over our heads and beyond our abilities. I mean, right? Who in here doesn't feel like there's no way I can get over that sin? Who in here doesn't struggle with something, with revenge or letting our yes be yes and our no be no? Who in here is free from some habitual sin that Jesus talks about directly? Probably none of us. The sermon can feel like our guy that we talked about a few weeks ago, Sisyphus, like trying to push that boulder up the hill, only to have it run over us again and again. So is Jesus giving us an impossible standard? Well, yeah. If, if you insist on trying to do it alone, if you are driven to follow Jesus by a self-righteous, self-driven effort, pulling yourselves up by your little Christian bootstraps, you will find this impossible. But the answer is no if we remember what Jesus preached before this sermon. The impossibility of the sermon fades away when we see the possibility of what Jesus has already told us before the sermon already began. Because there is a message that was a catalyst for the Sermon on the Mount. There's a catalyst for the crowd that comes to meet him on the mountain. And it's in Matthew 4, 17. What comes before the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first message. It's the message that was his core message. And that was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the reign of God has drawn close. Jesus' basic, most core message is a reality has now been opened up. There is a kingdom that is available to all, and the king is in that kingdom, and now everything can change. Dallas Willard paraphrases Jesus here, and he says, what Jesus is saying is this, rethink your life. All of it in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is now open to all. I really, if you hear nothing else today, may this point drive home. That what Jesus offers us in the Sermon on the Mount was only possible by us entering into a new reality under the headship of him as king. And when we make him king and Lord, we realize everything can change. Now let us understand that. We, I know and we all know that repent in modern Christian America is a dirty word, 
right? It's six letters, but we've made it four letters. We make it a scary word. Repentance, though, is not about feeling bad about oneself. When a preacher tells you to wallow in guilt, he's not giving you repentance. He's giving you guilt. Repentance is about changing what I believe in and where I put my hope. And so Jesus comes along and goes, change what you trust in because a new kingdom, the kingdom of God is right here. So stop trusting in your own. Stop trusting in the kingdoms of this world. Put your citizenship in a whole new realm. Then everything can change. I was headed this way, but in light of the news of Jesus, I'm now headed this way towards the king. Discipleship is what we call this. It's the word for change and rethinking. It's what the early Christians understood to their core that we often miss. That the nearness of God's kingdom is the reason we can do the impossible. Because the one who can do all things makes it possible. And so Jesus closes with with this sermon with three pictures, three word pictures to say, here's the way to live this out, to do the impossible, to practice what you preach. But all this, hold on to as possible because of the nearness of God. And the first picture he gives is one of a narrow gate. A narrow gate. Enter through this narrow gate, for in it you will find a narrow road, and that road will lead to life. Now, let me say a couple things about this. This narrow gate and the road it leads to is not, as often assumed, doctrinal correctness, nor is it a moving sidewalk for those who have a ticket to heaven. We have made the narrow gate. Well, I got baptized. I'm going to heaven. I'm on the narrow way. That is out of context, poor teaching. We have also made it doctrinal correctness. Look, we worship right. We do everything right. We must be the narrow road people. That is out of context, poor teaching. Okay? Context matters. What is the narrow road? The narrow gate is obedience. The narrow road is obedience. Obedience to what? To the Sermon on the Mount. What did he just talk about? You want to be on the narrow road, you love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. You get up during communion and you go forgive that person that you have something against. That's narrow road living. It's not, oh, we didn't do this or we didn't do that or look, we commune every Sunday so we must be the right church. It's not that at all. Jesus' context is context for live this out. Be obedient to the way of the kingdom that he just spelled out in Matthew 5 through 7. I love Francis Chan. Many of you are familiar with him. Probably read some of his books or heard some of his podcasts. But about 15 years ago, Francis Chan had a man who had been with him. And he knew, he had known this guy for over a decade who approached him after a sermon one day. And he started the conversation with Francis this way. He said, you know your problem, Francis, which is a great way to start a conversation. 
And then he went on to say, you want us all to be radical Christians. You want us all to do stuff that is impossible and you preach it every week. And then he said to Francis Chan, he said, why can't we just live in a middle road where we do some good things and we profess Christ. Your problem is you're, you're rejecting all the people in your church that just kind of do some stuff. And then Chan really didn't know. He tells the story. I didn't know how to respond to something like that. So he just said, well, I went with Jesus's word. So he said, you're saying there's a narrow road and there's a wide road. And now you want me to talk about a middle road? So that we can do whatever you want? And then he just asked the guy, are you serious? I heard that story years ago and I've held on to it, but I don't want to hold any judgment against that guy that went up to Francis Chan and asked that, because I'm that guy. I have a hard time going, that guy was wrong, Francis Chan's right, because I'm that guy that wants a middle road, amen? I want that. It's why we say things like, well, we really don't have to, or, or we sometimes twist Jesus' words and we say, yeah, Jesus knows my heart. And Jesus says hard things and he tells us to do difficult things and we twist those words and we say, well, as long as you just believe it and study it. And look, Jesus, we memorized it in the Greek, then we think we're okay. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. And I don't want us to twist the narrow gate in our direction. I want us to humbly accept it. First John chapter one, verse six, John says it plainly just as Matthew does here, speaking Jesus's words. In 1 John 1, 6, John says, those who claim to live in him must live just as Jesus lived. Often our problem is not that we don't love Jesus. I believe that you guys love Jesus. I love Jesus. And our problem isn't that we don't admire him. We admire Jesus. We do. Our problem is is what the narrow gate is. It's obedience. We love and admire him, but we don't obey him. And that's the first picture Jesus gives as he wraps up this sermon is one of obedience. Obedience to the way of life in the kingdom that he spelled out in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. The second picture he gives is one of a fruitful tree. It's this idea that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, right? Easy, simple, we get it. It's easy to understand. But the more I sat with that question, do you get that, Jake? Do you understand that? Good tree, good fruit, bad fruit, bad tree, all that stuff. I don't think I do. Because what Jesus is actually presenting here is a view all the together different than what we actually live out and what we believe. I'm going to pick on us and probably be a little too general for a second. You might be thinking, well, you've already been picking on us, Jake. Well, just a little bit more longer. I'm picking on myself too. But here's what I often believe. I believe a fruitful tree is produced by a lot of knowledge and a lot of willpower. If I study enough on patience, 
Dad gummit, I'll finally get there and I'll be patient, right? If I study enough on sacrificial love, then maybe it'll click one day and I'll actually be sacrificial. Y'all with me? We believe that, but that is not what Jesus is teaching here. If I read just one more Devo or if I just have one more book that I can get into, then something will click. Now, I'm not against those things. I think those are great supplements, but that is not what Jesus is, is, is doing here. Jesus is saying something about our identity. He is saying your fruit is determined by who you are. And no amount of knowledge or willpower or effort or gritting your teeth is going to make a tree produce different kind of fruit. The fruit is inherent to the tree's identity. Fruit happens because of who the tree is. It's inside out. And so when we walk through the narrow gate into obedience and we start to say and respond to Matthew 4, 17, that the kingdom is near, repent, we have a change in identity. I now am a member of the kingdom of the heavens. So then I can produce fruit. In other words, plant yourself in Jesus and you will naturally produce fruit. Plant yourself halfway in Jesus. I think Jesus doesn't give us a halfway option. I think he would say you won't produce fruit. So what am I saying here? So Jake, are you saying we don't need to go to church? Plant yourself in Jesus. Are you saying I'm wasting my time by reading scripture and devos and listening to podcasts and books? Plant yourself in Jesus. I've memorized some scripture, Jake. Isn't that enough? Plant yourself in Jesus. That's the point of this. It's an identity that produces action, not an action that produces identity. It's I am in Christ. Everything can change. I hope you hear me. He who has ears, let them hear. This is all about our identity. Let us be reminded this morning that we are not American Christians. You are a Christian who happens to live in America. And you should be thankful for that. You're not a fill-in-the-blank, whatever career you have, Christian. You're a follower of Jesus who God has put in the oil field or in the school as a teacher or as a rancher or in your home as a stay-at-home parent. Why? To represent Jesus. Teens, you're not a football or basketball player or a band member who happens to sometimes go to church on Sundays. You're a Christian who has the opportunity to display Jesus in your school, on that team, in that band, because you are planted in him. It's the identity you've been given and the only identity that matters. That's what he's saying about trees. So produce fruit. Jesus is with you. You are in Jesus. And as you go and as you walk that narrow way, guess what happens? You produce fruit. There's so much freedom in that because then you realize, I don't have to do it. If I stick to Jesus, he's the one that produces the fruit in me and through me and for me and around me. And then Jesus gets to a final picture after talking about a narrow road and a fruitful tree. And he says, plant your life, build your life on a solid rock. 
I love Jesus' direct message. You know, you, could, you can't get around this. He's not being too allegorical. He's not beating around the bush. You couldn't go, well, what's the rock, Jesus? Nobody finished the sermon that day and went, who's the rock? We all know who the rock is, right? He's going, practice these things, build your life on me. Now, I've been in church my whole life. I've been around countless number of sermons. I've been around hundreds of different ways to do things and inspire people. I've seen all kinds of different calls to action, how to teach, how to correct, how to help people. I've seen some that really work. I've seen things in a church. Churches do great things. And I've also seen some that are horrible where you're just left rolling your eyes. And I'm sure I've produced many of those and done some of those and said some of those things. I try to hold my opinions on those things lightly as much as I can hold my opinions lightly on anything. I'm pretty passionate about every opinion I have, right? That's just the way I am, for good or bad. But there is one area of church that I just have no tolerance for. I have zero tolerance for this, and it's the times in church where we get up and we beat around the bush of what we actually need. I don't know if anybody's like me. I'm just being confessional here. When a church leader has gotten up in my past, and this is even when I was a young kid, I can still remember it, seeing it for the first time, but when a church leader gets up and the church needs money for missions and the, or they need it for a building improvement and it's a great need and the church leader gets up and beats around the bush, I have zero tolerance for that. I don't like sugar-coated. I want to just be told what to do. Anybody with me? That's why I love the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He just stands up in front of people and he goes, if you put these into practice, you will live the eternal life. And if you don't, it's going to crash. And then he just finishes. You want a good life? Jesus says, build it on rock. You want a foolish life? Build it on sand. It couldn't be more plain. So back to our funambulist. You guys can wow your families at Christmas this week, right? I want to be a funambulist, Grandma. <laughs> Let's go back to Charles Bolden. Here he is with his little wheelbarrow going over the falls. Tight rope, rope walking against Ni over Niagara. At this point in his life, when this picture's taken, he had performed this act over a hundred times, always finishing up, of course, with the invitation. Now, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And for hundreds of times, the crowd would go completely silent. Nobody would raise their hand. Nobody would say, oh, pick me, Charles. Until this one afternoon, as he crossed over, he had already asked one side, do you want to get in? He crossed over the other side. And he said, do you think I can do it again? And everybody said, yes. And then he asked that famous question. Well, who will get in the wheelbarrow with me? Got real quiet. And then all of a sudden, a guy named Charles Colcord yelled out, I'll do it. <laughs> he raised his hand. Every neck craned and turned around. Thousands and thousands of people look, and here's this guy, Charles Colcord, and he's like, I'll do it. 
And he walked with great boldness right up to the ladder that went up to the little platform that was helping suspend this wire. And he gets and he sits down in the wheelbarrow and he looks at the great bold and he goes, Blondin, and he goes, let's go. And he goes right across it. No problem. But there was a secret there. There wasn't anybody cheating unless you consider this. Colcord had been friends with Charles Blondin his whole life. He knew him. He worked with him. He helped him set up this thing. He had been with him. He had seen this act over and over and over again. And so he was fully confident in his ability. He knew that Blondin would not fall. There's a great lesson there. The lesson is that life with Jesus, when he invites us into this narrow way, can seem scary. It's worrisome, maybe even fear-inducing to show love to our neighbor and to our enemies. It's terrifying to have those hard conversations of reconciliation in church with brothers and sisters as if your relationship with God depended on it. But Jesus says it does. It's wild and radical for us to serve and give to others in a way that we give ourselves away. But church, God isn't falling off the tightrope, is he? Jesus isn't going to take a spill. We can get in the wheelbarrow just like Mr. Colcord did with full confidence that we're not going to fall. God is undefeated, church. And so therefore, we can take these steps on the narrow way, build our lives on the rock, and then have fruitful lives because we're getting in the wheelbarrow every day. As I give an invitation, I want to give you something that Barry shared with me this week in a book that I actually gave him for Christmas. So I like to give books that I haven't read. So... (laughs) But it's a story about the late Christian uh, musician, Rich Mullins. Love Rich Mullins. Read about his life. He's an awesome guy. Kind of a hippie, but just love Jesus. But he talks about, Rich Mullins had this quote one time where he says about his progression as a Christian, as his desire to be a follower of Jesus grew. He said, that when he was a kid, he'd walk down front to the front of the church or at camp about once a year to dedicate his life to Jesus. It was after he'd been baptized. So about once a year as a teen, he'd walk down the front to rededicate his life to Jesus. And then in college, he found himself doing it about every six months. As an adult, when he started his music career and his books, he said, I was rededicating my life about, every, about four times a year after that. And then he writes, in my 40s, I was walking down front to Jesus about four times a day. I love that. I think about that in my own life, and I think that there was a time in my life that I used to think, 
Well, how silly would that be that somebody needs to rededicate themselves over and over and over to Jesus? And then I honestly look at my own life and evaluate and say, Jake, why aren't you rededicating your life to Jesus over and over and over? I often shudder at the idea of how many times have I shrunk back from personal conviction? How many times have I let fear dictate or vagueness dictate or my idea of my own sin and inadequacy dictate what I do instead of Jesus dictate what I do? Why I love the Rich Mullins story so much is he wasn't letting somebody else dictate his love for Jesus. If it was four times a day he needed to get in the wheelbarrow, he was going to get in it. But I do confess this to y'all. I don't want to be a person, and I hope you don't either, that kind of gets near the narrow gate but never walks through it because I'm afraid of what others might think. For we all know this to be true. We'd much rather have a church full of a dozen people who are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus and obey him than we would a thousand people who are kind of devoted to him. So our question as we wrap up is do you follow Jesus or do you just admire him? I'm not posing this question to you and I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. Jesus is asking you today. Will you be obedient? Will you follow? Will you get in the wheelbarrow? If you need anything this morning, we've got our Baptist baptistry full. It's ready to go. It's a little dirty, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you're ready to say I'm all in. That's how we do it. It's how Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years. It's a symbol, but it's more than a symbol. It's a connection. It's a participation in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus so that we can become one with him. And if you need anything else, if you're just saying, man, I need another day to rededicate, let's do that as a church family because we're all there multiple times. Amen? Amen where we need Jesus every day. Let's stand together and let's sing.